0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the
1: Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of of grace, grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mary, Mother Mother of God, pray for for us sinners, sinners, now and at at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen holy Holy mary Mary, mother Mother of god pray pray for for us sinners sinners, now and at at the hour hour of our death death. Amen. amen pray for us O holy mother of god that we may be made worthy of the promises of christ let us pray pour forth we beseech you o lord your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of christ your son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop talks about the background and principles of Catholic social doctrine. Its roots go back to a 19th century encyclical and it has flourished into teachings based in the gospel and natural law. Bishop then explains how these teachings can be applied to social issues, politics, and culture. Afterwards, it's on to questions from listeners on blessings, communion wine, and more. If you have a question for a future episode, just go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop.
0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule for us. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be back. We had a a listener actually, in addition to the questions that we get, a listener had an email suggesting we cover Catholic social teaching in an upcoming episode. So by the way, people can not only submit questions, but if you have any suggestions, topics, themes, uh, feel free to submit those. We'd be happy to hearing ideas that you have for the show. So... With the idea of Catholic social teaching, can you explain what does that mean,
1: and what are some of the aspects of Catholic social teaching? Yeah, I mean, the Catholic social doctrine, or Catholic social teaching, is, um, is very rich. Mm-hmm. I, I, and we speak of it sometimes as one of the, the greatest, uh, best-kept secrets. A lot of people don't know a lot about Catholic social teaching. But I guess very basically, we're not just individuals, mm-hmm. we live in society and therefore we we have relationships with others so this is what uh when we talk about catholic social teaching it looks at social issues and about our life in society in community and we look at it from the perspective of the gospel so we look at issues that have to do for example with the economy mm-hmm. i mean that's part of living in society economics politics work all these different areas that have social implications, that's where we get into what we call Catholic social teaching, Catholic social doctrine. Is Catholic social doctrine different from social justice? I'd say justice is social justice would be part, part of, of the okay. uh, Church's social doctrine, but it's not the whole thing.
0: Now you mentioned that this is one of or potentially could be considered one of the Catholic Church's best kept secrets. Why do you think this is such a, a lesser
1: known aspect of Catholic teaching? I'm not quite sure. I'd say now it's probably better known than when I was growing up mm-hmm. because it's part of the curriculum in our schools now, and it really wasn't when I was in school. So I think at least the principles of Catholic social doctrine are becoming more known. When you look about the church's concern for social matters, some said, oh, this is new. No, it isn't. I mean, the church has been concerned about social matters since the beginning. Uh However, there was a significant development that took place back in the late 1800s. And there was a famous encyclical written by the Pope at that time, Leo XIII, Hmm. called Rerum Novarum. Now, he wrote this because there were some very significant economic developments and events that took place in the 19th century, like the Industrial Revolution, that had a huge impact on life in society, on social life, on politics, on culture. So what Pope Leo in that encyclical did was he examined the social conditions, the conditions of workers, which was particularly difficult and really distressing when you had all these industrial laborers who really experienced a lot of misery in in humane conditions. So, what the Pope did is he, in this encyclical, examined the labor question Mm -hmm. in all its dimensions, its social effects, political dimensions, and he evaluated it according to the scriptures and natural law and morality okay and so then he gave us expounded catholic teaching on work on human work things like then the right to private property of hmm. uh, the principle of collaboration rather than class struggle because at this point we have the birth of communism for marxism communism social change should be through collaboration not conflict he looked and defended the rights of the weak and the dignity of the poor. He emphasized the obligations of those who were becoming rich, mm-hmm. the right to form labor unions. So all of this is in this encyclical by Pope Leo Thirteenth, called Rerum Novarum. And he was really articulating his concern for justice, justice for workers, and a just ordering of society. And what happened after that is future popes took that up and they developed it. So we have this whole century, the 20th century of several social encyclicals by various popes and the church or the popes analyzed and updated and expanded these principles that were in Rerum Novarum. Mm -hmm. Now, on this show we could talk a lot i don't have time to go through you know the last 120 some years (laughs) um but you know let me just give you an example saint john paul ii wrote three social encyclicals Hmm. they were all very very important one on human work called laborem exercens another on the theme of development human development called solicitudo rei socialis and then a an encyclical his third called Centesimus annus and that was on the hundredth anniversary of rerum novarum Hmm. and that was on the principle of solidarity because around that time you have the solidarity labor movement i mean even the labor movement in poland that that really ended up toppling the communist regime was named for a principle of catholic teaching Solidarity, one of the principles of our social doctrine. And John Paul, in that encyclical, he gave an in-depth analysis of democracy and the free economy after the collapse of the Soviet system in the context of this principle of solidarity. So, we really are blessed. We have this rich tradition of social teaching that's actually not just for Catholics. I know a, a lot of non-Catholics who have benefited from the study of Catholic social doctrine. It might be helpful to look at some of the principles, but I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, Kyle. I would love to hear more about the principles, but you talking about
0: all these different encyclicals. I've got me curious, how many encyclicals do you think that you've
1: read? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, all these social encyclicals uh, I probably read almost all of them, probably because you know Paul the Sixth and he wrote a couple, and Pius the Twelfth, Pius the Eleventh. Yeah, I would guess ten or twelve that I've read on this just, question on social, on social doctrine. Social... Right? Yeah, there's other encyclicals on other topics. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, I've never added them up. All right. So then, what are some of the principles of Catholic social doctrine? Well, I always begin with the first because it's the most fundamental. And I don't think it would come as a surprise to anyone. It's the dignity of the human person. Okay. Sometimes we speak of it as the personalist principle. Hmm. Because really what's most fundamental is the church sees in every human person the living image of God himself. So whenever we're looking at analyzing or, or making a judgment about things, does it serve and promote the dignity of the human person or does it violate the dignity of the human person because it's the human person who's the protagonist of all social life Mm -hmm. so our whole social doctrine develops from this principle that every human being has an inviolable dignity from god that human life is sacred and if we're going to have a moral society this is the foundation, the recognition of the dignity of the human person. It's the foundation of a moral vision mm-hmm. for society. So doesn't matter what social issue we're dealing with, whether we're dealing with issues of war and peace, or issues of the economy, or immigration, or whatever we're looking at, the personalist principle is operative in our analysis, okay. because we believe that every person is precious, that people are more important than things, Mm -hmm. and that the measure, really, of every human institution is whether it enhances or threatens the life and dignity of the human person. So we believe as Catholics that a just society can become a reality only when it's based on respect for the transcendent dignity of the human person. I can't emphasize this enough. We don't look upon the human person as only a an object or that a human being can be manipulated. No. no. Every political program, any economic or social program, scientific program, whatever, has to give primacy to the human person and his or her dignity. So if you want to look and say, okay, I want to try to understand The Catholic Church's position on social matters. If you don't understand this fundamental principle of the inherent dignity of the human person, you're not going to understand why the church teaches what it does. Right.
0: All right. Well, this is all very interesting. And I think there's a lot more that we need to cover about Catholic social doctrine. So we'll do that coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking about Catholic social doctrine. And I know there's a lot more. Bishop, could you continue to talk about some of these principles?
1: I'd say that the second principle that is very fundamental, you've heard of it, is the common good. Okay. We believe that every aspect of social life must be related, if it's to attain to its true meaning, to this principle of the common good. And again, this stems from that other principle of the dignity of the human person and also the equality of all people and our unity as human beings. So the common good is really the social and community dimension of the moral good. How do we accomplish as individuals a moral action? It's, it's by doing what is good. Mm-hmm. So when you look at society as a whole, the actions of a society attain their end when they attain the common good. The primary goal of society must be the common good, which is the good of all people and the good of the whole person. Okay. That's the common good. So when you look at, um, at this, there are various demands of the common good. One of the demands of the common good is commitment to peace not violence, Mm -hmm. you know, a just judicial system, the protection of the environment. These are all things that are ordered to the common good. The provision of basic essential services for everybody, like food and housing and work and healthcare, education. So this is really the responsibility that belongs to everyone, is to promote and to seek the common good. Not just my good, mm-hmm. but the common good. Why do we even have political authority? It's to serve the common good. Hmm. That's the job of the state. It shouldn't be all about self-interest or someone you know, seeking political office it shouldn't be for their own gain. Mm-hmm. It's to serve the common good. And one of the implications of this and this is something that i don't think a lot of catholics know or talk about much but i think it's really important because it is a very important catholic principle it's the principle of the universal destination of goods the universal destination of goods so according to catholic teaching god gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members, not excluding anyone. The goods of the earth are for everyone, basically. That's the universal destination of goods. So we believe, as Catholic, that there's a fundamental human right to use the goods of the earth. So, therefore, when you get into the area of economics, economics should be inspired by moral values which promote the well-being of everyone and which do not exclude or exploit people. Every person should have access to the well-being that's necessary for his or her full development. So everyone's born Mm -hmm. with the right to use the goods of the earth. That right is to be exercised in an equitable way. So ownership of goods, according to the church, should be equally accessible to all. And when we understand the right to private property, which Pope Leo XIII wrote about in Rerum Novarum, we don't see that as absolute or untouchable. It's subordinate to the right to common use, to the fact that goods are meant for everyone. So when you look at this issue of private ownership, it's in relationship necessarily to the common good. Let me just give a concrete example. If you have someone who, you know, in a poor country, and let's say 90% of the land in that country is owned by one family, mm-hmm. that's not just. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so we need to look at uh, the universal destination of goods, that private property isn't something that, even though we believe and the church teaches the right to private property, there is a corresponding principle that we must be concerned for the common good of all. Sure. And that's why the church has such particular concern for the poor and the marginalized. Pope John Paul II, how often he spoke about our preferential option for the poor. This is considered when the church today looks at various issues. Like if we look at various uh, pieces of legislation, the bishops that is, we'll ask, well, how will this decision affect the poor? You know, How many times do do politicians ask that question. How is this peace, this law, how is this going to affect the vulnerable in our midst? So the Catholic church really being faithful to the gospel puts the needs of the poor first when we look at these issues. And of course we see pervasive poverty in some places or places where there's prosperity, but only for, for some, we proclaim that a basic moral test of a society is how are our most vulnerable brothers and sisters doing right that's you know uh, a important question another principle is subsidiarity mm-hmm. a definition was really given by pope pius XI, and he spoke of it as a community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order but okay. should support it so when we look at these communities of a lower order What's the most important? What's the central social institution? The family. Mm -hmm. So the principle of subsidiarity is saying, okay, if you have a higher order like the government, Mm -hmm. it has a grave responsibility to respect and support and not interfere in the internal life of the family. So laws should not undermine the family. They should strengthen it. Now, we live in an individualistic society, and the Catholic tradition teaches that human beings grow and flourish, find their fulfillment in community. Well, what's the first community, the first natural society? It's the family. Mm-hmm. So, the rights of the family. This it's the center. This is what we call the vital cell of society. So, the family should never be put into a secondary role okay. or subordinate it has its rightful place in society if society is going to flourish it's not going to flourish without strong families Mm -hmm. and we believe of course that the family is born of the communion of life and love founded on the marriage of one man and one woman Mm -hmm. that's part of the church's social teaching really important so when you look at that principle of subsidiarity all societies of a superior order they're meant to help subsidium Support, promote, develop these lower order societies, mm-hmm. beginning with the family, local communities, etc. That allows for the initiative and, and spirit of people, because that's where we relate. Mm-hmm. That's more important for us. So, the principle of subsidiarity is a really important part of community life, and uh, the church defends this principle.
0: So... With regards to subsidiarity and putting the emphasis on the family providing for the needs of itself, and I guess the organization's job is to nourish the family so it can do so, what do we do when the family isn't able to provide for the needs, either financially, emotionally, broken homes, maybe different kind of disabilities or uh, deaths within the family and no the family can't provide for itself then,
1: then yeah. what's the next step and that's where another uh, principle comes into effect that i'll talk about and that's solidarity okay and that's where we need to step in and help because we respect the, the dignity of those human persons who perhaps are not in a stable family or have families that are dysfunctional or whatever then there needs to be someone stepping in to help especially with children and so we are called to solidarity Mm -hmm. with those who are in need and that's the other major principle of catholic social teaching and it's really solidarity when you think about it. it's not just a principle it's a moral virtue Hmm. so we cannot be or should not be indifferent to the needs of others or isolationist like okay I'm only concerned about myself. Or, you know, where we see isolationism sometimes is in, on the national level. You know, like, all we're concerned about is the prosperity of the United States. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, that's not Catholic by any means. Uh-huh. Catholic social teaching proclaims that we are brothers and sisters within the human family. Mm-hmm. You know, what did Cain say to God? I am not my, am I my brother's keeper. Well, yes, we are. Right. You know? We, and, and we're one human family. Whatever our national identity, our racial, ideological differences, economic differences, we're one human family. So if we're practicing the virtue of solidarity, you know, loving our neighbor isn't just our American neighbors. It's right. everyone. We should There's a global dimension. This is connected to the common good, because common good is about everybody. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for all. So that's, you know, when people will get into the immigration debate this becomes a really important point. So I think these principles are really important. I think if people really understand these principles and seek to live them and then to apply them Mm -hmm. uh, to particular, especially when it comes to politics. So when you look at, okay, the church takes positions sometimes on various uh, pieces of legislation, Mm -hmm. it's always in light of of these principles of social teaching, which come to us from where? From scripture? Mm -hmm. And natural law. Okay. So it's not like these are just something that the church kind of makes up. These are rooted in natural law or God's revelation to us in, in his word, in the sacred scriptures.
0: And where would you send somebody to learn more about Catholic social doctrine uh, and... Besides going back to all these 12 encyclicals that you
1: read and (laughs) and making their way through those. Well, you see some of the Catholic social teaching in the catechism, Uh so you can look there. But I'd say if you really want a good resource, the best thing out there is what's called the compendium of the social doctrine of the church it's excellent okay and it was produced several years ago or or published i should say several years ago i think it was in 2005 the compendium of the social doctrine of the church and it was put together by the pontifical council for justice and peace it's one of the departments at the vatican the pontifical council for justice and peace Mm -hmm. the compendium of the social doctrine of the church so you can read in that about these principles that i talked about but also you can look at some of these like what are the church's teachings on the family Mm -hmm. as the vital cell of society they have a whole chapter on that another thing is what's the church's teaching on human work whole chapter on that What's the church's teaching on economic life? Whole chapter on that. What's the church's teaching on the political community? Hmm. Chapter on that. The international community, safeguarding the environment, the promotion of peace. I think every Catholic family should have in their library a copy of the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. All right, well, I'll put it
0: on my shopping list. (laughs) Uh, One other thing in regards to this topic, but I feel like we could really do a whole episode on any one of these little breakdowns here, but how does the principle of prudential judgment play a role in applying the rest of these principles? That's
1: a good question. Because really, when you look at the principles, every Catholic is expected to affirm these principles, to believe in these principles. Mm -hmm. In, uh, In other words, these are so rooted in our faith, in the gospel. But sometimes applying them, some may have differences of opinion. Mm -hmm. There might be, for example, a piece of legislation that's being considered by Congress. It might be very clear that this legislation is really just, it's gonna be a just law and it's in accord with Catholic social teaching. And there may not be much debate about it. But when you get to something, there could be times where there might be different proposals on how, for example, to eradicate poverty, two different approaches to an economic issue. Mm-hmm. And both may appeal to the same principle, but have different interpretations. Huh. So sometimes, you know, a prudential judgment has to be made. And oftentimes... You know, the bishops will have, uh, will study some of these pieces of legislation mm-hmm. and uh, make a recommendation on what would be most in line with the teaching of the church. But sometimes it may not always be black and white. Right. And that's where prudential judgment comes in. Now, there are certain things that are black and white that you can see, oh, this is a just law or this is an unjust law. Mm-hmm. I can give so many examples. Clearly, a law permitting abortion in whatever circumstance, direct abortion, violates the first principle, Hmm. the dignity of every human person. That's pretty much black and white, you know? But then there might be another piece of legislation that is very Mm anti-immigrant and one can say, well, this also violates the dignity of the human person. It's unjust. That could be very clear, very black Mm -hmm. and white. But there might be something about different means by which to reduce poverty i mean for example you see some who say oh we need tax cuts that's going to help right because then they'll create more jobs so you get into certain areas where there it's more of a prudential judgment raising minimum wage and things like that right right okay yeah so anyhow it's complex i mean one of the things in this show i mean we could just zero in on one of these things we could zero in if we wanted on economics or Uh we could zero in on immigration or one of these issues. But I do think it's important for our people to be educated in our teaching uh, so that we can make well-informed decisions in our conscience. All right. Again, that book that you recommended is The Compendium
0: of the Social Doctrine of the Church. People... Add that to your family library, as Bishop said. All right. And if you have any questions about this or any other topic, you can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can find past episodes. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions like who can do blessings, how much time we should spend in prayer and more. Here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
2: If you're enjoying Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, be sure to check out Redeemer Radio's other locally produced programs, including The Kyle Hyman Show, Dr. Doctor, and Church Life Today. To listen to previous episodes of any of these, go to redeemerradio.com and select Audio Library. Or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and listen there. You can also submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future episode of Truth and Charity on the app or website. Or if you have a question for Dr. Doctor, a show featuring three physicians from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, you can submit it there too. So don't forget the Redeemer Radio app and website for past episodes of all our locally produced shows. Thanks for listening to and supporting Redeemer Radio as we continue our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ.
0: Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer, like this one. On the topic of blessings, I've heard that priests can bless people and things, but deacons can only bless things and not people. Is this true? What about parents blessing their children, and what should a lay extraordinary minister of Holy Communion do when an adult or child comes forward
1: for communion with their arms crossed? Yeah, when the, there's a book that the church has called the Book of Blessings, mm-hmm. and it says explicitly which blessings only priests can do. Okay. So most blessings deacons can do, but not all but it isn't really a distinction between things and people okay okay so deacons know that if they're unsure they can check the book of blessings to see if they're allowed to do it or not parents can bless their children for Mm -hmm. sure there's actually in the book of blessings there is a a prayer that parents can say over their children okay um it's nice to do when you put them to bed you know just place your hand on their head and maybe make a sign of the cross in their forehead and Mm -hmm. say may the lord protect you and bless you and um, you can use your own words. Okay. A lay minister, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, should not make the sign of the cross over the person. That's a priestly gesture. Okay. Um, but can simply say, may God bless you, or may Jesus be in your heart, or mm-hmm. um, something like that. But not make a priestly gesture. All right. Cecilia Hess asked, why was John the Baptist baptizing people before Jesus' ministry? Good, Cecilia. It wasn't the sacrament of baptism because sacrament of baptism was instituted by Christ. It was a baptism of repentance. So it was purely symbolic, a sign that a person hmm. was sorry for their sins. So we can say it was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't the sacrament of baptism. It did not impart God's grace like the sacrament would. Okay. Another listener
0: wrote. My heart is heavy with the abuse that is finally being brought out in the open. How are you relating the anger and disappointment of our Lord's flock so the Pope can discern that we as Catholics must fix this so it won't ever happen again? And I'll mention that this question was submitted before... The episode three weeks ago that we had with Donald Schmid, uh, the October 17th episode, where we talked a lot about the abuse and and what the diocese is doing, so I would definitely recommend people listen to that episode, but I think this is specifically asking uh, maybe what
1: your response to Pope Francis might be. Yeah, you know, I don't have any direct uh, encounters with Pope Francis. However, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to know that um, there were two meetings, with the leaders of our United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, including Cardinal DiNardo, the President, and Archbishop Gomez, the Vice President. They met with Pope Francis to tell him about what was happening in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, certainly relating the anger and the disappointment to the Pope so that uh, so that he would understand and know what is happening here. So I feel that he does know and um, certainly when we have our ad limina visits you know we that will be next year though where the united the bishops of the United States will be able to where we have to go to the Rome Rome and make a report on our diocese and have some conversation with the pope francis i'm sure this issue will be brought up because it's done such terrible damage to people and to the victims and and to the life of the church okay
0: artis smith from saint louis besanson parish asked what do you consider to be a good amount of time spent during the day or week in prayer?
1: Thank you for answering my question. Good question, artist. It's, it's hard to, to give a particular amount of time because everyone has their own state in life and their own you know different situations but i would say every catholic should do prayers in the morning and prayers at night mm-hmm. i think that's should be a daily practice certainly prayer before meals i'm very much convinced that a daily holy hour is a wonderful thing for the spiritual life that may be difficult for some people especially with jobs and families etc mm-hmm. so i would say you know if a family you know, for a person, I say, well, try to spend 15 minutes mm-hmm. in silent prayer or meditative prayer with the Lord. That would kind of be my advice. But there's no hard and fast rule. Everyone has to look at it. But there should not be a day go by where we don't give some time to, to the Lord in prayer. Do you recommend
0: that people have a special place in their home where they pray if possible?
1: That can be helpful to people. I know a lot of people, I visit their home and people will say, oh, yeah, this is where I pray. Uh-huh. You know, somewhere, maybe it might be some, a crucifix or other religious images, maybe some spiritual books in the corner, mm-hmm. uh, a comfortable chair, a candle, a Bible, those kinds of things. I think can be helpful for people. I'm very blessed because Bishop's can have a chapel in the right. house, you know. <laughs> I'm so spoiled to have that and I love it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, do you do your morning and evening prayer in the chapel?
1: I do. Unless okay. I'm traveling, then I listen to it on the, through my Bluetooth. Uh, okay. <laughs> believe it or not, they, I, I can do that. But no, I love praying the bravery in my chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. All right.
0: Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we'll talk about why priestly vocations hasn't risen with the population, what grapes go into communion wine, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for him to answer. Christine Grog from Immaculate Conception Parish in Auburn asked, Will you be adding your name to the current list of 36 archbishops, bishops, and cardinals from the U.S. who have expressed public support for investigating the claims of Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano? Many on the list have also expressed support for Vigano himself, praising his integrity and calling him honest and loyal.
1: Oh, thanks, Christine. I wasn't aware of of such a list, although I would say that um, from day one, when I learned about the... McCarrick affair, I said that there needed to be a thorough investigation. I mean, we all want to know exactly how this whole thing happened how he was promoted when it was known that he was engaged in some sexual misconduct even though they didn't know till later about sexual abuse of minors but still it's very very disturbing mm-hmm. it's my understanding that um, the diocese is involved there's there's an investigation going on and also at the Vatican looking into the files mm-hmm. the Congregation for Bishops etc so this is related to the whole thing of the letter from Archbishop Vigano and I really do think we need answers how did this happen so that nothing like this ever happens again. Mm -hmm. Another listener said,
0: with an ever-growing population, one might think candidates for the priestly vocation would rise. However, that isn't necessarily the case. Do you think it's because their faith isn't strong enough to receive God's call due to sin, individuals ignoring God's call, or
1: something else? I would say something else. I mean, those things might enter in in particular individual cases. Mm -hmm. But, vocations only spring from disciples that's the most fundamental thing we need to form our our young people our children and young people as real disciples of jesus christ mm-hmm. so really I, the fundamental problem is the lack of formation in discipleship i think all vocations will flourish Even marriage will flourish, as will priesthood and consecrated life, when we have, especially our young people, well-formed as disciples of Jesus. And that is not just an intellectual formation, but also a formation of the heart. Hmm. Um, That's our fundamental mission. Didn't Jesus say, go and make disciples? So I think even though we have a growing population and a growing Catholic population, the question is... How many are truly disciples, really intentionally following Christ, making decisions according to his teachings, who really have a, an authentic relationship with him in daily prayer, regular reception of the sacraments, Sunday mass, all of those things. When you have that, we'll see the rise in vocations. Sure. Someone
0: asked could you please explain the use of incense during a funeral mass as the priest walks around the casket? It's so beautiful, and the song that's sung during that time always makes me cry.
1: It's so comforting. God bless you, dear bishop, and my continued prayers. Oh, thank you for that question. You know, the use of incense at mass, including at funerals, as I think many will know, it's, it's a symbol of our prayers rising to God. And it goes back to Jewish times. They would use incense in the mm-hmm. temple in Jerusalem we read about incense being offered in the heavenly liturgy when you read the book of revelation it describes heavenly worship the liturgy in heaven with an angel holding a censer he's at the altar of incense and again it's the incense rises like the prayers of all god's holy ones rising so at a funeral we use incense besides at the regular times you know not just incense in the altar or incensing the book of the gospel we also incense the body of the deceased. And that's a sign of honor, because that body was a temple of the Holy Spirit at baptism. But it's also a sign of our prayers for the deceased rising to God. Mm -hmm. It really is beautiful. It adds solemnity, I think, to the uh, liturgy. And of course, the sweet smell reminds us of the sweetness of the Lord. I'm glad that the uh, the listener mentioned the the song that's sung when the priest incenses the casket because it really is a uh, beautiful hymn i think the words there's different musical settings to it but it's a it's really a great prayer we call it the song of farewell hmm. and some of the listeners probably know it saints of god come to his aid hasten to meet him angels of the lord and then we respond receive his soul and present him to God the most high. Of course we say his or her depending Mm -hmm. on the deceased. And there are a few other verses as well that I think the lyrics are beautiful. May Christ who called you take you to himself. May angels lead you to the bosom of Abraham. Receive her soul and present her to God the most high. And then finally we sing the, the very common prayer, eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord and let perpetual light shine upon her. Then everyone sings, receive her soul, and present her to God the most high. Hmm. And I can understand how that will move to tears. Sure, Uh, You have the priest doing the incense right around the body in the casket. You have everyone singing this beautiful prayer. And then after that, the priest says the prayer of commendation, basically commending the deceased person to Christ, to God's mercy. All right. Our final question comes from Cecilia Hess,
0: who asked, from what country do most communion wine grapes come from?
1: Cecilia, I don't know. I only know what my own, the wine that I use for my daily mass, and I think a lot of parishes use, is a company called Oneida. It's from vineyards in New York State, hmm. believe it or not. Not California, or, but I don't know. There's different companies you can buy the communion wine from, but I think that's probably one of the biggest. Okay. Altar wine, we call it. Mm-hmm. Altar wine. Um, and it's from vineyards in New York State. Is it a particular type of grape or blend of wine? Yeah, or? it depends. I mean, you can order the kind that you want. There's different ones. Yeah. Okay. I, I use a, um, I think it's called St. Michael's Red. Okay. Yeah.
0: And it's made specifically for
1: to yes. be used in, in liturgy? it's altar wine. Yep. Okay. Yep. Now, you don't have to just use those, but you have to use wine that has enough alcohol content that it's actually wine mm-hmm. and not grape juice. Okay. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Remind people that they can find past episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can also find it in the Redeemer Radio app or or wherever you get podcasts, just do a search for Truth and Charity and get caught up on past episodes if
1: you haven't done so. Uh, Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Yes, and I think it would be good maybe to do a prayer for those in the armed forces and for our veterans, right? Isn't the uh, uh, Veterans Day is coming up? November 11th, yes. Yeah. So why don't we say a prayer remembering those in the armed forces and those who have served in the armed forces. Okay, great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we commend to your gracious and protective care all the men and women of our armed forces at home and abroad. Defend them day by day with your guiding hand and heavenly grace. Encourage them and strengthen them in their trials, temptations, and discouragements. Grant them your abiding presence wherever they may be. And Lord, bless all those who have served in our armed forces. We ask you to continue to bless them with your heavenly grace as we give thanks for their service to our country. And may God bless all the listeners of Redeemer Radio. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.